back to geography lessons with Miss Sangha. So in last week's podcast we looked at economic development in Nigeria. So in this podcast we're going to be looking at another case study and that is economic change in the UK. So let's look at the changing UK economy. So the key learning for this section is how the industrial structure of the UK has changed and the effects of globalisation on the UK economy. So let's start off looking at the industrial structure. So the type of work that you will do when you leave school or university is likely to be different from the work that your parents do and the jobs that they do are probably different from what your grandparents did. The industrial structure of the UK Um, the types of work that people do, is always changing. So, during the 20th century, the UK industrial structure changed. The primary sector, which is agriculture, mining and fishing, declined. Um, This is mainly due to the increased use of machinery. During the 1960s, the manufacturing sector also declined due to um, machinery and competition from abroad. The service sector increased with the growth of public services and financial services and during the 1980s the new knowledge sector which is research and development um, grew and has been growing since the 1980s and then by 2011 around 80% worked in services, 9% in manufacturing and just 1% in agriculture. However, industrial structure does vary around the country as different areas specialise in different industries. Now let's look at the impacts of globalisation. So the UK economy is changing due to globalisation. This is the way businesses, ideas and lifestyles spread rapidly around the world. So for example, more businesses in the UK are now owned by foreign companies while in the same way more British companies own businesses in other countries, it would be almost impossible for the UK to be isolated from the global economy. We've been trading with the rest of the world for centuries and for the UK economy to thrive we need to be part of the global economy. So some of the impacts of globalisation in the UK, we've got economic growth, we've got cheaper goods and services, we've got foreign investment, high value production, migration, less manufacturing and we've got outsourcing jobs. Now let's look at deindustrialization and government policies. So in this section the key learning is how traditional industries have declined in the UK, how government policies have affected the UK economy and how the government has responded to deindustrialization in the northeast. So, um, let's start off looking at how traditional industries declined in the UK. So, deindustrialization is the process of the decline of traditional heavy industries. And the best example of this in the UK is coal mining. So during the 20th century, the number of coal mines in the UK declined from over 3,000 to just 30. And the last working coal mine in the UK actually closed down in 2015. 
Other manufacturing industries like shipbuilding, textiles and steel have declined as well in some regions. Um, the impact of deindustrialization on northeast England. So, um, northeast England was one of the first industrial regions in the UK at the start of the Industrial Revolution. It became one of the first to experience deindustrialization with the closure of the coal mines and shipyards. So, when the coal mines closed in Essington, um, the they were left with over a thousand men being unemployed and 20 years later the town has still not recovered unemployment is still high people are on low incomes and business in the town struggles to survive um, in terms of how government policies have affected the UK economy so from 1945 to 1979 the government nationalised many industries, creating new state-run companies such as the British Steel Corporation. This helped to support the declining industries and protect jobs. Um, however, low productivity and foreign competition eventually led to factory closures and loss of jobs. And during the 70s, there were workers' strikes and unrest in protest at the closures. Then from 1979 to 2010, the government privatised many of the nationalised industries, believing that private companies could run them better. Companies tried to increase productivity. This led to even more factory closures and job losses. Then from 2010 to the present day, the government has tried to rebalance the economy um, to reverse the loss of manufacturing jobs, particularly with jobs in new high-tech industries. They've invested in new transport infrastructure, such as London's Crossrail and the HS2, to encourage more private investment. And the way that the government has responded to deindustrialization in the North East, they've tried to invest in new infrastructure, they've tried to encourage foreign investment from large transnational companies, and they've also been setting up regional development agency, which happened in 1999. Um, this was replaced in 2012 by a local enterprise partnership, which supports businesses, improves skills and plans for economic growth. So what about the move towards a post-industrial economy? So the key learning is what a post-industrial economy looks like, where most economic growth is found in the UK and how the M4 corridor contributes to the economy. So a post-industrial economy is one where, man where manufacturing industry has been replaced by tertiary and quaternary jobs. A new sector of the UK economy that's been growing rapidly is the quaternary sector. This is sometimes described as the knowledge economy, as it involves research and development of new ideas. So the development of information technologies has transformed people's, has transformed people's working lives and economic development in the UK. Um, this is because computers can store and process vast amounts of information quickly, Mobile devices enable information to be accessed almost anywhere. Satellites and the internet promote the flow of information. And the internet and computers enable people to work from home and be self-employed. 
The UK is one of the top IT countries in the world and this attracts investment from overseas companies. In terms of where most economic growth is found, um, these cities include places like Liverpool, Manchester, Leeds, Birmingham and London. So it is the major cities and these cities are often the focus of growth corridors following major transport routes where the fastest economic growth is happening. In terms of the M4 corridor, um, the M4 corridor from London to Bristol has become home to high-tech industry over the past 30 years. Many companies like Microsoft and Vodafone are based here, usually in business parks. It's estimated that the M4 corridor produces 8% of the UK's economic output, as much as Manchester and Birmingham combined. Recently, business has business that is in the M4 corridor has been sucked into London. Vodafone moved there in 2009 and Google has now opted to move too. The factors that draw companies to London is the attraction of urban living for a young workforce, the proximity of similar companies to swap ideas and workers and new businesses require less space in the first generation of high-tech industry. Um, so this is just a short section on why Cambridge is a growing hub um, for high-tech industry and how it's a good location for industry as well and some of the disadvantages. So the reason why it's growing as a hub is because um, the city lies about eight kilometres north of London, which is close to the M11 in one of the UK's growth corridors. High-tech industry in Cambridge began with the Cambridge Science Park in the north of the city, um, which was opened in 1970 by Trinity College. Trinity was the first of several Cambridge University colleges to make links with industry. So in terms of some of the advantages and disadvantages um, that Cambridge has as a location for industry, um, some of the advantages include the good transport links, graduates from the university provide a highly educated workforce, um, the city offers a good quality of life with plenty of shops and open spaces. And then in terms of some of the disadvantages, the city is overcrowded and congested. This makes it difficult to drive or park. House prices are quite high and they're still rising, making it quite expensive to live there. And road and rail routes need to be improved to speed up connections to other cities apart from London. Now let's look at the rural changes. So the key learning is how rural areas are changing, what changes in an area of population growth and what changes in an area of population decline. So in terms of how rural areas are changing, most people in the UK do live in urban areas but 19% still live in rural areas. And although they might not look crowded, the population of most rural areas in the UK is actually growing as a result of counter-urbanisation. So people actually leave the cities to live in the countryside for a better quality of life. The population of urban areas is growing faster, but this is mainly the result of natural increase and immigration.
So around the major cities in the UK, there is the green belt, and the green belt is a green open space in which further building development is not allowed. And within the green belt and just beyond, there are towns and villages that are desirable places to live and commute to work in the city. Without the green belt, these areas might have experienced even greater population growth. Due to the housing shortage in the UK, there is pressure on the government to allow more building in the green belt. There is a high demand to live in both the green belt and national park areas. This has pushed up house prices, making homes for local people unaffordable. This is forcing people to rent locally or to move away. So some of the changes in an area of population growth. So some of the social changes include population growth, helping to maintain demand for rural services like shops or schools that otherwise might close. If a village has a high proportion of commuters, it may feel dead during the day, losing its sense of community. Car-owning commuters do not need public transport, so services may be reduced. This affects the local people, and local people may feel resentful towards the newcomers. In terms of the economic changes, population growth brings new energy so newcomers are more likely to start their own businesses and employment opportunities may rise some services like shops may close if if commuters don't use them or only use them on weekends newcomers are often wealthy and this helps to push up the house prices um, and the house prices may be unattainable for most local people In terms of what changes in an area of population decline, essentially um, shops tend to close in the areas and younger people move away. So it means that the older people continue farming. And in these areas, there tends to just be um, a convenience store, which is just for the local people as If there aren't many people in the area, then there isn't a need for many shops. Now let's look at improvements in the transport infrastructure in the UK. So the key learning for this section is how government investment is changing in transport and the arguments for high-speed rail and the supporters and objectors to high-speed rail. So let's look at how government investment in transport is changing. So, there are over 35 million vehicles on the roads in the UK, and this grows every year. Despite government investment over the years to improve road network, traffic congestion is still a major problem, and journey times become slower rather than quicker. So, in the 21st century, government investment in railways um, helped to relieve congestion on the roads, In particular, there are plans for a new high-speed rail network in the UK. Already, high-speed one runs from London to Kent on the same route as the Eurostar from London to Paris. Now there are plans for high-speed two, which is shortened down to HS2 from London to Birmingham, then on to Manchester and Leeds. So the government's most recent road investment strategy in 2014 is to increase road capacity with over 100 new road schemes by 2020 and over 100 miles of new lanes added to motorways 
Additionally, there are plans to improve the M4 motorway by making it a smart motorway. This involves helping to reduce congestion by varying the speed limits to keep traffic moving smoothly. So arguments in favour of the high speed rail include the fact that it will take pressure off the existing road and rail networks, encouraging more people to travel by rail. It will reduce journey times between cities as people spend less time travelling and it will bring economic benefits to the Midlands and North England where deindustrialisation has led to a loss of jobs. Although it's not planned to start running until 2031, there are already ideas for High Speed North, which is a railway route from Manchester to Leeds to link cities in Northern England. So supporters of the High Speed Rail include the main UK political parties, large cities like Birmingham, Manchester, Leeds, businesses in those cities and the Scottish Government, as it's expected that the HS2 will help to generate £40 billion for the UK economy. It will increase the number of rail passengers and make transport more sustainable. It's a faster way to travel between cities. It will be carbon neutral because it will reduce journeys that use other transport. Um, whereas the objectors to the plan include county councils on the route like Buckinghamshire and Oxfordshire and um, this is because they say that it's more likely to create jobs in London and people will commute there instead and existing rail routes could be improved to increase the number of passengers and the number of people flying within the UK is already falling so essentially the HS2 is it's also quite expensive as it's estimated to cost over 80 billion and it's difficult to predict how much money it will generate so there are arguments in support of and against the high speed rail but the government has decided that it will go ahead now let's look at the ports and the airports in the UK so the main ports and airports so the ports are located at coastal and estuary locations all over the uk and they're mainly used for the import and export of bulky raw materials as well as manufactured goods usually in large metal containers these are then transported by road or rail around the uk some ports some ports are also used for passengers traveling on ferries or cruise ships the airports are located close to major cities, especially London, and they're mainly used by passengers travelling on international flights. The largest airport in the UK is Heathrow at the moment. So why has a new port opened on the Thames Estuary near London? So one advantage is that it will bring larger ships closer to London which is the biggest market for consumer goods in the UK. It will reduce the distance lorries need to travel and help to cut carbon emissions and once it is complete the London Gateway will employ 2,000 people with another 6,000 employed at the new logistics park next to it. And this is where many companies will base their distribution centres. There are also um, debates about whether Heathrow Airport should expand or not. So the arguments in favour for this is that it will help London compete with 
Rivals like New York and Paris, the airport employs 76,000 people and supports a similar number of jobs in London and the expansion would boost the UK economy by over 200 billion. Um, some arguments against is that Heathrow is already the largest emitter of carbon dioxide in the UK and this would increase when the, if the airport expands. Noise pollution would also get worse for 1 million people who live below the flight, the flight path and one village would be demolished and two others would be threatened. Um, people are also arguing that Manchester should be expanded instead and the arguments in favour for this is that the airport is further from built up area so fewer people would be affected by noise. 22 million people live within a two hour drive and the HS2 would also improve connections to the airport and it would boost the economy of northern England. Um, arguments against the expansion of Manchester include the fact that the boost to the UK economy as a whole wouldn't be as great as expanding Heathrow and London would be less able to compete with rival cities and the carbon dioxide emissions would increase by 50% if the runways double from 1 to 2. Now let's look at the UK's north-south divide. So, in people's minds there has long been a north-south divide. So, um, north of the line that has been drawn, um, there are hills and mountains. It's where most manufacturing industry was located until deindustrialization began. There are higher unemployment levels. Population is growing more slowly as people move to the south to find work. And the house prices are lower because there's less demand for housing. Whereas south of the line, there's flat, fertile farmland. There's less manufacturing, so deindustrialization has been less of an issue. Higher employment levels are found, population is growing more quickly as people are moving there and the house prices are higher because there's more demand. So the strategies that the government is trying to use um, include identifying areas of the UK that need special help, called assisted areas to provide money for new businesses, improving the transport infrastructure, linking cities in the north, including improvements to the M62 motorway and a proposed new high-speed rail link, giving more power to individual cities to take decisions on on how to raise and spend their own money, and also designating 24 new enterprise zones to encourage new businesses, um, including low rates, simpler planning, regulations and super-fast broadband. So, something to think about, or... Um, come up with an answer to is does the north-south divide matter and does it matter that the most wealth and economic activity is concentrated in the south of the country and finally let's look at the UK's place in the world so we'll be looking at how the UK's place in the world has changed the UK's links with the Commonwealth and the UK's links with the EU so, how has the UK's place in the world changed? So, the British Empire once covered around a third of the world's land surface and during the 20th century, most countries in the empire 
gained independence from the UK and became members of the Commonwealth. All of these countries share common values, including the promotion of democracy, human rights and trade. One consequence of Britain's historical role in these countries is that the English language is often used. So um, the UK's links with the Commonwealth. So the UK does maintain its links through trade, culture and also migration. So many people of British descent now live in Commonwealth countries like Australia, Canada and New Zealand. And of course, there are many people of Asian, African and Caribbean descent now living in the UK. Migration from these countries grew in the second half of the 20th century and it still continues, which is what is allowing us to fill gaps in the UK workforce as our population gets older. There are strong cultural and sporting links between Commonwealth countries, including the Commonwealth Games, which happen every four years. Um, now that the UK has left the EU, some people expect these links to become stronger. So, as we know, the UK has left the European Union, and until it left, the UK benefited from its support while keeping to its rules. EU membership had many effects on the UK. These include goods, services and money um, moving freely between countries. So many EU citizens lived here and many UK citizens lived there. The European funds helped to provide support for some of the poorest regions in the UK, such as the assisted regions. Hundreds of thousands of people from Eastern Europe came to the UK to work in agriculture and service industries on relatively low wages. This was a key factor in the Brexit vote. Many EU laws and regulations affected working practices, product standards and environmental guidelines in the UK. Um, the UK also contributed billions of pounds every year to the EU budget. case study for the changing economic world and we've looked at economic change in the UK. I hope you enjoyed listening to this podcast and you learned something. I really enjoyed making it as I learned a lot about the UK. So thank you for listening and I hope you come back and check out the next podcast.